What is conservatism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Brandon Turner. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Brandon Turner. Brandon is Associate Professor of Political Science at Clemson University, where he has taught political theory since 2009. His work has appeared in Political Theory, Review of Politics, Polity, and elsewhere. And he has written on the political thought of figures like Augustine, Machiavelli, Bernard Mandeville, and John Stuart Mill, among others. He is currently finishing a book manuscript on conservative, social, and political thought. Brendan, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. So, Brendan, we base each of our episodes on a question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is what is conservatism? And most of our conversation is going to be based on your essay about the same topic. So I think it's a great opportunity to essentially walk through that. But of course, we can expand on ideas as we go along. And I'm sure we'll go many different directions. But the first thing I want to use as a jump off point is actually something you did mention at the beginning of your essay there. And you you talked about at the beginning of your paper, giving a systematic and comprehensive account of conservatism. So can you talk a bit about what sparked your interest in this particular project and why you thought, you know, exploring a comprehensive and systematic account is is needed? Like, what's the interesting part of this to you here to look at it from this perspective? So to me, so my my own view is that I'm not, I'm not sure that a, uh, comprehensive, comprehensive and systematic account of conservatism is on offer, or I'm not sure that conservatism the way that i would like to think about it really lends itself to that kind of uh analysis and i mean if you're looking for a comprehensive or systematic treatment of conservatism there are lots of them um you know there are lots of you know pretty notable uh, and noteworthy figures figures like russell kirk um uh who have you know kind of tried to produce a program that goes by the name conservatism an ideological program that goes by the name conservatism so, you know, even though a lot of these guys and it's not just Kirk, there were, you know, a bunch of these guys kind of through the 50s and 70s. But then recently there have been a number of uh, works. George Will has a new book on the conservative sensibility, I think. Yoram uh, uh, Hazoni. Sorry, I, I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing that. But he has a new book, you know, 500, 600 page uh, tome uh, that kind of seeks to lay out a program like when we say conservatism. This is what we mean. Here's a set of values. Here is a set of outlooks. Here's a set of foundational texts. And this thing altogether comprises a kind of distinct, um, actionable, right, um, uh, uh, ideological project that we're going to call conservatism. And, you know, part of what I want to do in the paper and this this book manuscript I'm working on more generally is to move away from that. Um, and is to to maybe uh, abandon conservatism as an as its kind of traditional ideological kind of endeavor. Mm-hmm. And 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 you do say it in the same part at the beginning of your essay that you know, and you're kind of alluding to this that the good and useful account of conservatism is never going to be as systematic, if you will, as some might prefer or desire. And I'm kind of baby stepping into the topic here because I do want to jump in, of course, to how you view it and how you divide things out of conservatism. But but what is sort of the nature, if you will, of such a body of thinkers throughout time that we could trace some through threads through and sort of the, the types of thoughts and values? Like why? What is it about this whole idea of 
this nebulous conservatism that might not end up being as systematic as someone like you know you mentioned a couple people that they as they might prefer why not yeah uh i mean uh because i think part of what i think part of what conservatism has to offer and of course here i've already problematized a term that i'm now going to use pretty much throughout the the session here but i think what one of the attractive things conservatism has to offer is it uh it presents a critical outlook on a distinctly, I think, modern way of thinking about politics, which relies very heavily on uh, ideological categories. So it's, I think, part of the reason that conservatives, self-avowed conservatism, people looking at conservatism, part of the reason they want it to look like an ideology is because I think those things that they have identified as its rivals, namely um, something called liberalism, maybe something called socialism or communism, uh, these projects are ideological in a variety of ways. Um, uh, I mean, I think, you know, the idea, liberalism as an ideology, I mean, it's constantly shifting. I think, you know, any two liberal theorists are going to put, are going to, you know, kind of rest the liberal project on different principles. I think there's a lot to be said for moving liberalism in general away from um, uh, strictly ideological terms and more into thinking of it as a set of practices and things like that. But for the most part, uh, uh, Liberalism is understood as an ideological project. Those who consider themselves liberals consider themselves liberals on the basis of a set of values or principles that they hold, likewise with socialists, likewise with with communists. Ideology is uh, it is extremely valuable. It, it, it is uh, it does a lot of work um, in the 20th and 21st century um, in the absence of strong sort of patrimonial ties in the absence of strong allegiances to crown or to church uh, in the absence particularly of strong conceptions of nations or something like that ideology does a lot of the works that a lot of the work that makes politics go right so ideology motivates voters ideology orients policymakers ideology allows political actors uh, political entrepreneurs or whatever to organize and so if you want to have any kind of um political affect uh, in today's modern nation state, you need an ideological project. You need a set of ideas you can sell people in lieu of um, mm -hmm. some other basis of legitimacy, in lieu of some other basis of of uh, obedience or something like that. Um, I mean, that leaves aside, you know, considerations of charisma and a figure like Trump and stuff like that. But for the most part, you need a set of principles that you can sell people. A set. I mean, I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm just saying that this is kind of what makes politics go. Right. Uh, and so I think what a lot of conservatives are looking for is precisely an ideology that can compete in the political sphere mm. uh, with it, with its opponents. Right. That makes sense. And I guess and you're saying that, and therein lies the difficulty, right? It might not be as, as you said, systematic or as tight, uh, relatively speaking, of course, yeah. uh, as something like liberalism or socialism or Marxism might be or, or whatever else. Well, it actually has an even worse problem, which is that, uh, I mean, if we just think about I mean, if we think about the word conservative, if we think about the kind of associations that we normally have with the word conservative, I mean, what is it? It's just it's resistance to change. Right. So um, <laughs> that means that conservatives in uh, in America are going to look different than conservatives in Latin America. They're going to look different than conservatives in Eastern Europe. Conservatives in 2023 are going to look different than conservatives in 1975, conservatives mm. in 1925, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's very difficult to build an ideological project out of simply the desire to arrest or to walk back change. Now, I think that there is, I think there are, uh, there's something you can sell there. I think 
uh, fear of change uh, reaches people on a kind of, you know, primal level. I mean, I, in other words, I think it's a it's a perfectly viable, if often liable to abuse, but it's a perfectly viable way of animating people in mm. uh, in mass democracies. But in terms of ideological projects, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like, uh <laughs> Uh, it, it's it's funny, like on the one hand, like conservatives, you know, consider themselves to be on the side of like eternal truths. They consider themselves to be on the side of the tried and the true and resistance to change or whatever. But the conservative project undergoes more complete and total transformations. The conservative ideological project goes through more of these transformation than than, for example, socialism, right, which is uh, which you know, uh, associates itself with a certain kind of radical approach to uh, the world and things like that. Right. So. I mean, conservatives are facing and I mean, it's, it just can't be done. Resistance to change can't possibly be the basis of an ideological project that's oriented around values or principles or something like that. And uh, what ends up happening typically is that either it kind of um, uh, slides into a kind of populist reactionaryism, whatever you want to call that, which is what it I think in many ways has happened uh, in the last 10 years, uh, or it just focuses on the left. So in other words, it becomes a. A, a kind of a permanent opposition sort of endeavor. Uh, and I think there's a little bit of both of that, right? So I think you're uh, a, a figure like uh, Trump um, is much more on the kind of straightforwardly reactionary side of things, if he has a political project, ideological project at all. But I think, you know, many of the concerns about about CRT and, you know, you know gender radicalism and stuff like this, th this just this is an ideological project that's oriented around uh, a hatred of whatever it is the left is is doing. So in that case, again, you're not going to be on the side of the permanent and unchanging things. You're just on the side of opposing whatever it is that you think is happening, right? Um, in the world, and I mean, it just puts you. I mean, it, I, I, we we can talk about this more. I mean, it's a losing proposition in about every imaginable way. Uh, if you think you talk to a lot of conservatives of this stripe, you know, the 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 sky is always falling. They're always losing. Every 10 years, they, you know, they run a new seminar on why, why, why can't we win? Why do we always, you know, why are we always losing, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it, you know, losing is built into it. Uh, uh, you only know what to do when you've started, as far as you can tell, when you've started losing. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a either way, uh, either just kind of resistance to change in general or resistance to the left. When it comes to building a kind of positive ideological project, to the extent that such a thing is valuable at all, it's, it's, it doesn't work. Right. And therein lies some of the problems. So I think that was a, like, a great overview of sort of effectively introduction to some of the problems, if you will, that we're going to be dealing with when we try to sort out like what is conservatism as as big a question yeah. that is. And we certainly just, you know, full disclaimer, everyone listening are not going to provide the answer today. We're exploring a lot here today, but it's we have an hour of yeah. a podcast. But but let's get down a little further into like the meat of your essay into some of your thoughts on this, too. So when you get down to the bare bones of everything, the way I understand the way you're thinking is around this is you say there are effectively two species of conservatism that we need to keep distinct in our mind. And we're already dipping into that a bit here with the ideological side. And, and the first is indeed sort of under the umbrella of the species that you do call ideological. And the second is skeptical. So I want to tour through that a little further and get into some more details, but of course let's start and also continue in some ways talking about the ideological side first. So at the highest level, let's pull it back a bit and say, like, what do you mean by ideological conservatism yeah. here? Uh, so when I say ideological, what I mean is that uh, many of the schools of conservative thought that have cropped up over the past 100 years, 120 years, really since conservatism became uh, a kind of self-conscious project. Like if you want to go back to the 19th century and talk about Burke, you want to talk about the, I don't know, like the etymological or historical roots of the term conservatism. 
uh, I mean, that I guess that's worth doing, you know, for, with regards to certain inquiries. But for the most part, I think at least in America, conservatism becomes a sort of uh, a kind of self-conscious endeavor in the post-war period. So if we're looking at, you know, the 1950s, if we're looking at the origins of publications like National Review, if we're looking at, you know, um, uh, people like Russell Kirk, uh, a little bit before that, I guess, the Southern agrarians, the 12 Southerners, stuff like this. Uh, when American conservatism kind of becomes aware of itself and aware that it itself is a, is a kind of a, a movement that uh, is being organized. Uh, what I mean by ideology in this sense is that it's it it again, it's a project that tries to mirror in certain ways or tries to um, uh, 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 mirror is not the right word. It's a it's a project that sees itself in a struggle against a particular um uh, way of looking at the world. And mm. so in, in in many ways, it kind of constructs itself as uh, a kind of a mirror image of it, as a negative of it, right? So if, you know, if we're thinking back to the Southern agrarians, for example, and the Southern agrarians um, and their, um, and the, the kind of the children of the Southern agrarianism, you know, they played an integral role in the, in the, in the early years of National Review. Um, you know, guys like Russell Kirk were enamored of them, but I mean, they were reactionaries in, in a lot of ways. So they saw the, the 20th century liberal project, the liberal Leviathan, as, you know, it's an industrialist project. It is an, an increasingly um, uh, egalitarian project. It's an increasingly communistic project. It's an increasingly uh, urban project. It's an increasingly cosmopolitan project. Mm. It has all these sorts of dimensions. And so, you know, what was conservative gonna, conservatism going to be? It was going to be a set of values that sought to oppose that in every way. So it was going to you know, it was going to be agrarian rather than industrialized. It was going to be rooted in rural values rather than urban values. It was going to be distinctly located in a, in a particular time and place as opposed to being cosmopolitan and rootless um, uh, in this whole night, in this whole uh, uh, this whole business. So um, when I say it was ideological, what I mean is that conservatives since this time have been always in search of a set of principles, a set of values that are attractive enough, that are potent enough, hmm. that can marshal enough popular support to fight back this thing that they see as as liberalism. And and, and even if, if I understand sort of the way you think about this correctly, is it seems that you're saying that even if there is some sort of uh, let's let's call them main ideological pillars or values that people can rest this ideology on, it still all is rooted in and sort of. This, that sort of prime mover, that starting point is really like resistance to something, I think, is the point you're getting across. Yeah. It, yeah. And it's but I mean, what, what I guess was striking to me when I started kind of looking at this stuff, kind of surveying the whole field of it was how um, to take something like uh, economics. So, you know, uh, I mean, the story about the kind of fusionist project at National Review and yep. then later the, the sort of Reagan revolution has been told to death. Um, but as you know, you know, one of the three legs of the three legged uh, stool or whatever was essentially free market uh, economics. But if you look at the Southern agrarians, uh, for example, and now if you look at conservative figures now uh, in the 21st century, many of them are explicitly uh, opposed to uh, to economic globalization. They're opposed to, you know, laissez faire, a kind of deregulate deregulatory right. approach to economic policy. And that's just one example. I, 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 it's, it's difficult actually to find one principle or value or something like that that all conservatives across this thing called conservatism have agreed on. Uh, their approaches to natural right, their approaches to uh, racial equality, their approaches to 
um, you know, the urban-rural divide, uh, their approaches to hierarchy, their approaches to religion. Um, I mean, they vary widely. Uh, it's a pretty remarkably diverse uh, body right. uh, in a lot of ways. And I, I think what has allowed this, um, I think what has allowed this to nonetheless appear to be a coherent ideological movement is the fact that it was always oriented around an explicitly political project, more more so, I think, than liberalism was, at least in the academy. So I think recently the the ways that maybe Rawlsianism is implicated in a kind of modern welfare state liberalism or something like that, mm-hmm. I think this has become a little clearer, a little more um, explicit uh, uh, than it has previously. But, you know, from its beginnings, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, somebody like Buckley saw himself as really a kind of go-between, a kind of intermediate figure that would pull, you know, in the early years of National Review, I mean, he's getting, you know, Donald Davison's writing for them, Russell Kirk's writing for them. I mean, he's he's getting sort of ide- uh, like um, philosophical heavy hitters, in other words, to come in and write uh, for National Review at the same time that, you know, they're writing these, you know, pretty, uh, what today we might call wonky or even sort of catty um, you know, little op-eds on, you know, this or that senator and, and this kind of stuff. So I, I, I think, um, I guess the, 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 the kind of, uh, uh, the, the mortar that has made the ideological conservative project in the 20th and 21st century go has always been, uh, the sense that this was, this was a political enterprise. This wasn't as, um, abstract or I'm not abstract is the wrong word. This wasn't as kind of apolitically philosophical, as a lot of the works that we associate with 20th century liberalism. Right. And, and I think another point you sort of touched on as you were going through that answer is also that, that this idea of the diversity, right, is there's a couple of, um, you know, th- through lines or threads that hold the larger tent or umbrella together, if you will. But I, I think it, it's important to highlight that. I don't think anyone would actually say, you know, conservatism, especially in the American scene over the times and over throughout the different kind of issues that you were just highlighting there, too, is sort of like this monolithic enterprise of the same archetype, if you will, of person that would fit yeah. themselves under that umbrella. I think that's key as well. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, to the extent that we when we think of conservatism, what we think is someone who opposes the left. Uh, I think cons- that conservatives themselves have relied on that as a kind of shorthand for deciding who's included in the in the tent and who's not. And I think those outside have likewise included um, those uh, that that's how they've also made the decision about who counts as a conservative and who doesn't. I mean, it would, in other words, it would make a lot more sense if we looked at the political right as a somewhat diverse set of, you know, more or less rigid ideological camps than we do now. So, I mean, if you look at, you know, in the 21st century Right. You've got your your kind of I, I don't know what you'd call them, your postmodern trollist type conservatives like, you know, Bronze Age pervert, um, you know, other kind of alt-right figures like Mencius Molbug and uh, these kind of guys. You know, what do they have in common with, you know, Eric Vogelin? What do they have in common with the kind of high churchy type of conservatives that want to re- or reorient society around, you know, pre-Vatican II, you know, whatever? Like, I don't know what they have in common except – Right. This kind of deep-seated opposition to the regime, uh, as they see it. Mm-hmm. And actually, on that note, I'd like to bring in a quote here that I, I, I pulled from your essay about tension and conservatism. And then we, we covered a lot of this already, but I think it's just apt to sort of read here. So um, I'm going to read it here. There's a nice chunk of it here. So you say in your essay, you know, when it comes to conservatism, on the one hand, it has been marked, even from its 19th century inception, by the considerable weight it places on conceptual stability. So, you know, as you said, conservatives, resistance change, they're trying to conserve things. This idea of stability is obviously important. But then you go on to say, you know, 
On the other hand, later on, you say, that conservative ideology in practice has nonetheless has has been nonetheless, excuse me, characterized by ideological instability and even outright contradictions. So all these folks that seek to conserve something and oppose, for instance, radical change from the left, for example, are in their own tent and the way they're being dragged around, I guess, by this resistance, you're saying that's where the, the contradiction really is. Like there's an instability as to what, you know, piece of ground can we put our foot on and call ourselves conservatives is what you're getting at. Yeah, uh, that's, that's right. So, um, Again, that's as long as we can, as long as what we think conservatism is, is this is a project like that, you know, that it's a that it's a it's a matter of finding the right principles, right, right, finding the right values, finding the right texts. Um, And I think a lot of the more recent attempts, these kind of big book attempts to to say once and for all what conservatism is, some of them are quite good, like Scruton's book from the 80s, I think is really good. Um, But you know, a lot of these attempts to kind of set the, I mean, there, there's a, there's ultimately, there's a, a quicksand like quality to them. Um, the conservative project, uh, it, it's, it just doesn't have such a basis. Um, and part of what I want to argue there and what I want to argue more generally is that it doesn't need a basis. And in fact, actually it provides us all sorts of tools for, uh, moving beyond, uh, this, um, Particularly, again, I think it's a particularly modern approach to politics, which seeks out first principles, uh, you know, constantly. I mean, it, it seeks to justify itself almost always by reference to first principles, to, by reference to abstract principles. Conservatism, I think, when when not properly understood, because it suggests that there is a real thing in it. But I think there are plenty of resources within the conservative tradition that can really caution against us and give us alternative ways for for doing politics, for thinking about politics, for understanding politics, for understanding the relationship between politics and, you know, other activities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that gets, you know, not just lost, uh, it gets um, in many ways destroyed by this uh, much more uh, uh, aggressive <laughs> um, ideological project. Mm-hmm. And on another note, of, as far as this contradiction discussion is concerned here, like, in your essay, you do talk about how, you know, if, if we accept that sort of up this principled resistance to change as part, generally speaking, of the ideological side of conservatism. How, and you do point out that this seems, of course, to be in tension with the new wave of conservatism that does seek to either destroy, dismantle or get rid of. And I mean, what, what's the key to understanding that? I mean, is it really even a contradiction, for example? Like that is to say, is perhaps one valid way of looking at it that, we're seeking to destroy and dismantle because the wrong people over in charge have taken us too far the wrong way. So we're not really conserving the stuff that we don't like, like at, at the most base bones level, what do you think is the driving force between that, that sentiment, if you will, under the conservative belt? Cause you're absolutely right. I don't think anyone would disagree. Um, even conservatives themselves, of course, that identify with that as of today, uh, that, you know, destroying, dismantling and being rid of many things is, is, is off the yeah. agenda. I think that's very much on the agenda and part of the rhetoric and part of the, the ideological side, if you will. So how do we kind of see that contradiction and make sense of that when at the end of the day, they would also say that they are, you know, principally resistance to resistance to too much change or radical change or whatever else. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I think there's a couple things that feed into it, but it does, I mean, it reminds me actually of kind of how I got into this project originally, which was, uh, uh, um, I, you know, I, like in 2015, I, I think I was a kind of standard, 
uh, if there's if such a thing as a standard libertarian, standard classical liberal, maybe a little bit left libertarian, something like that. And it was actually the, the election in 2016 that in weird ways kind of pushed me some ways to the right, partly because uh, I was astounded, actually, at, um, I guess, how radical of a campaign Trump ran on the one hand in terms of what he promised. Right. We're talking wholesale, you know, the draining the swamp. Um, you know, we're t- you know, promises of a, of a you know, a, a, a whole scale reevaluation and scaling back of of uh, the administrative state and the federal bureaucracies in general. Uh, there were there were in other words, there was a, there was a kind of um, there was a kind of libertarian, I think, that was always going to fall for Trump because he represented an almost comically exaggerated version of many of the things that people have talked about for a long time. Like, in other words, the federal government is full of waste and corruption. So we need a businessman to come in and institute business principles. Uh, uh, you know, the whole idea, I guess, that there we don't really need political expertise. All we need is is good rules. We don't really uh, we, you know, we don't need, um, you know, bog level politicians, et cetera, et cetera. What we need is principled uh, this and that. I mean, this this was the moment for that. And I think it went exactly the way everyone uh, knew it was going to go, which is to say it was a disaster. Um, so, I, I mean, I think, yes, as long as, you know, the project, I think there are three dimensions that uh, three features of the kind of 21st century uh, conservative mindset that lend it to um, uh, radicalism, uh, what do you want to call it? And uh, also to a kind of radical populism or kind of bottom up radicalism. Um, on the one hand, again, if um, if conservatism is understood in a kind of highly, ideal, highly ideological way, uh, which I think it is, then it's unsurprising that it's subject to precisely the same sorts of uh, enthusiasms um, and uh, uh, sort of radical chest beating um, demonstrations that other ideologies are. Um, so, you know, one of the original kind of you know 19th century, quote unquote, conservative uh, critiques of modern politics, uh, of what we now recognize as uh, a sort of liberal or rights of man approach to political life was that it was far too radical, um, that it was uh, unwilling to compromise on what it saw as natural truths or truth, truths that can be found in nature, truths that, I'm sorry, truths that can be found um, uh, under natural right, uh, truths that were produced by reason, um, and that rather than reconciling um, some uh, conception of natural right, a kind of moderate conception of rational right with existing institutions, it was more than willing to kind of rough, run roughshod all over these institutions. Throw them out. This is the kind of uh, you know the textbook story about what conservatism is or, or conservatism's origins. Um, but as long as you have a thoroughly ideological project um, in the way that American conservatism has uh, strived. Um, uh, the way that it described to, to make itself, um, of course, you're going to have um, uh, you're going to be susceptible to radicalism. I mean, you can see this is early. I mean, the Goldwater campaign is a good example of how quickly this uh, this new post-war conservatism became radicalized. Um, uh, I mean, Goldwater was in many ways a, a radical candidate and his rhetoric uh, was radical. Um, right. I mean, any any kind of. Uh, principle or value oriented project is going to be susceptible to, uh, you know, how do you demonstrate your um, your willingness to sacrifice for the cause while you hold an increasingly radical. Uh, it's a way of kind of demonstrating to other members of the group mm-hmm. your um, 
willingness to sacrifice for these values, et cetera, et cetera. So on the one hand, there's this ideological dimension. On the other hand, there is uh, its kind of political position. So I, I think there's a sense in which as long as conservatism, you know, this kind of loose ideological configuration, as long as it occupies a position on the political right, um, as long as it sees its constituency as primarily those voters that we think of as um, populist voters, as uh, you know, right-leaning voters, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, any time it reorganizes itself, uh, any time that uh, conservative ideology has to kind of uh, uh, kind of reshuffle, when new winners have to be found. I think that's actually what's happening now. I think Trump mm. has kind of shattered the kind of uh, the, the sort of the, the the Bush conservative project, or the neoconservative project. Um, and how we're going to decide who the winner is? Well, it's probably going to be whichever one gets the most votes, uh, whichever one uh, can produce the most viable political project in a mass democracy in the 21st century. Um, uh, and so in that case, you know, the, the, the kind of ideology that's going to appeal in a mass democracy to very large amounts of people. And in particular, the sorts of people that we associate with the political right, uh, it's not going to be this kind of, you know, uh, studied and refined, um, you know, uh, you know, the slow boring of whatever, like it's, it's not going to be this, moderate project uh it's going to be a project that can rally voters mm. uh, it's going to be a project that can get them excited um and so i think you know there are a couple in other words of kind of structural features of the modern conservative ideological project that lend itself to these kind of periodic outbursts of radicalism right and that makes a lot of sense and we do have to go to break but i have one more question before we do because i don't want to lose the train of thought on it because you mentioned okay. it earlier and i wrote down so like you know before we had to break i just i just had this thought as well about you know especially when it comes to this ideological side and ideological conservatives as you've been describing and based on everything we've talked about do you do you find that even though and as you you correctly outline you know there's the there is this sort of especially now uh radical everything is wrong the sky is falling we're losing we have to win we have to set things back on the right track everything's terrible etc etc type of um feeling and sentiment from many who call themselves conservatives today and of course there's been waves of this in the past as well underneath it all do you feel or think that there is some val validity in saying that at the end of the day, you know, a lot of these conservatives are ultimately a sort of utopian type thinker. And what I mean by that is they'll often critique the left, quote unquote, as being so utopian. Oh, you know, we're going to have a socialist paradise, da, da, da. But look how that turns out over here. So it seems they're often attacking the utopian. But I find that even when many folks are coming from the sky is falling, doom and gloom perspective, always underneath that is to larger degree some sort of alternative it's only it, it, it's as if to say only primarily if we get rid of all these problems the liberals the elites whatever it is yeah. then we'll return to this paradise or then you know uh, or, or in other words paradise is lost yes but because of xyz so if we take care of xyz so i'm not sure if, if i'm making any sense but it just occurred to me you know to, to think about that utopian angle yeah M mark lilla has written a short a couple of short books um uh, the shipwrecked mind and the reactionary mind, I think, where he makes this kind of argument and he argues that, you know, really what has always characterized reactionary thought um, is uh, is the same kind of political imagination. I think he uses the term imagination, but same kind of political imagination that animates um, radicals on on any on any political spectrum. Um, right. You th there there is a very real sense in which and, and really, it, I mean, I it's always kind of been there. I think conservative and reactionary thought have always kind of sat side by side. Uh, you know, it, 
every other account of conservatism that you pick up, some of them will say Burke and a figure like Demest, Joseph Demester or uh, Bonald or these other kind of French reactionaries. Some of them will say these are distinct positions, um, but a lot of people just kind of lump them together. Even somebody, even somebody like Roger Scruton, a pretty sophisticated conservative, I think sees Burke and Demester as interested as um, animated by the same sorts of concerns. Uh, and I, I, I just. I think it's wrong. I mean, I think it's fundamentally wrong. And I think, you know, it, conservatives do themselves a huge disservice in um, in seeing their own concerns as being those of reactionaries. Yeah, I mean, it's th this has been around forever. If, if the modern age and at some point, I think, uh, you know, reactionaries, I think one of the most defining features of reaction is that it has a very difficult time distinguishing between a distinct political program that we think of as liberalism on the one hand and something else called modernity on the other, mm. right? It kind of lumps them all together and it's just this big blob. So whatever it is, capitalism, industrialism, modernity, uh, uh, liberalism, you know, globalism, um, whatever, the, globalism, it, all of it, all of these isms kind of get stuck together and it's all just bad. And I mean, I, I, I think as as long as modernity is characterized by change, and I think it has been, I think it's you know one thing that liberals and conservatives and uh, you know uh, Marxists of all stripes can agree on is that the pace of change in modern life has is 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 uh, it's simply completely and totally unlike what uh, human beings have lived through before. Um, you know, uh, technologies advance constantly technologies that infiltrate nearly every aspect of our lives, right? The fact that we've moved so much of our lives onto computers and onto mm -hmm. the internet, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, change is, is a constant of modern life. And as long as that's the case, uh, there's always going to be this imagination of, there's always going to be this imagining of the past that'll be available, right? You're always going to be able to say, you know, this new change, is it good or bad? Well, some constituency is always going to think that it's bad. Uh, and so there's always this um, this sense of undoing, this sense of uh, foreboding, this sense of we're you know we're accelerating towards, um, you know you know towards the apocalypse or something like that. That's always there and ready to be exploited um, by a figure like 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 um, I, mean, I mean Trump's a good example. I mean I don't think Trump is a particularly ideologically oriented guy. Mm. I don't think he's a particularly thoughtful guy in any way. Um, it, you know, uh, but at the same time. He has the same kind of knee jerk things used to be better than they are now kind of impulse that I think we all do. And I think he recognized that that kind of thing sells. Um, uh, we all have in, endured experienced changes that we'd like to undo or things that we probably think on the whole were net losses. Uh, and so, of course, we'd all like to undo these sorts of changes. And absolutely, I think reaction uh, thrives on that sentiment, on that feeling of loss, on that feeling of undoing. That is, you know, I mean, in many ways, it's, you know, it's part of the warp and woof of, of modern life. Mm -hmm. um, uh, a, a, the kind of the pace of change that we've grown accustomed to means that uh, there's always this kind of loss. Uh, there's always this kind of remainder uh, that um, that um, we can think about and, and conjure mm -hmm. up. Right. And with that, I think we'll definitely take our break now. So everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Brendan Turner today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Daniel Beer, Rosa Pagliarello, and Danny Leroy. 
Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Brandon Turner today. Brandon, I think the uh, the first half of the episode and the conversations has been great. We talked about talked sort of a bit about our problem statement, if you will, for the episode. Then got into how you divide sort of conservatism into these two species, as you would have it. And we spent a good chunk of time on the ideological side. Now I want to shift gears on over to the um, skeptical side. So when we have ideological conservatives as a as a species, if you will, on one side, ideological conservatism, if you will, on the other side, you say we have skeptical conservatism. You make a point in the essay of also being you know, very clear to the reader and basically saying, yes, of course, ideological conservatives might be skeptical about certain things, but that's beside the point. We shouldn't really think of them as just one and the same. Like You, you make a distinction of the skeptical conservatism from ideological. So what is that distinction? Why do, you, why do you draw them so far apart in that way and say, as you say, they aren't two sides of the same coin? What's, go, what's going on there? Yeah. So, I mean, again, I'm, part of what I'm doing here, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, trying, I'm not trying to lay claim to you know, the true conservatism or to conservatism properly understood. I, I'm, I'm uh, you know, my interest just isn't in that kind of um, organizational um, uh, or taxonomical project. I'm so I'm not particularly interested in that. I mean, my, my impetus for, for working on this was um, I, kind of, I was kind of drawn up short by the following experience. And maybe you've had this experience, which is, um, you know, you read figures like Oakshot, you read figures like Burke, you read figures like Hayek, and, you know, you can't shake the feeling that this stuff is really good, like that, you know, you read, um, you know, Oakshot's uh, essays in rationalism and politics, I would put actually, you know, Hayek's mid and later career work in the same category, and you're like, man, there, you know, I, I, I can't imagine thinking about politics in, in terms of uh, uh, you know, without these terms, without these um, uh, new tools that right. I've, I've picked up in these texts that are con- you know, typically considered to be fundamental to the conservatism, conservative project or whatever. And yet, <laughs> so you read these texts and then, you know, you, you you pick up any number of, you know, American conservative publications or heaven forbid you turn on, you know, conservative talk radio or conservative TV or something like that. And you're, you know, you're just like, what is this? Uh, what what could the possible relate? I mean, what 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 could possibly connect um, a text like Burke's Reflections or Oak Shocks on Human Conduct um, or you know any any number of these uh, very good um, you know remarkably rich uh, you know texts that we consider to be part and parcel of the conservative tradition? What could possibly connect these to 20th and 21st century uh, conservatism? Um, and the experience I had in the classroom, too, so I teach a course called Conservatism, and I, I teach, you know, a number of courses in sort of uh, intro to political theory and teach a course called Liberalism, um, you know, teach modern political thought, et cetera, et cetera. And I get a lot of students um, I call like kind of right curious students who, you know, they'll read Burke at the end of the semester. They'll be like, man, I really liked this. Um, but at the same time, I don't see what this has to do at all with you know, the uncle that you fight with on Thanksgiving or something like that. So part of what I wanted to do was kind of look back and and pull apart this thing called conservatism and say, what you know, what is of value here? Uh, what what are the good parts of this? 
And eventually what I realized is that the parts that I liked, what I call the, the, the insights of, of skeptical conservatism or the skeptical conservatives, uh, the school that we used to think of as skeptical conservative, that these could be turned at least as easily to many other ideological constructs on the right as they could to those on the left. Hmm. In other words, we normally think about Oakeshott or Hayek um, or Burke, uh, et cetera, reacting to on the left radicalism. But I realized very quickly that, you know, these insights could be applied uh, again, at least as easily to um, ideological counterparts on the right. And so that's kind of how the, the project uh, began was in kind of looking at the right from a conservative perspective. Um, so that was the kind of um, the initial, I guess, thought, the initial foray into the project. And I've actually, I'll be honest, I kind of forgot your question. I kind of got into it. No, no, I, that ends up being a great intro anyway. So, okay. like, you know, having, <laughs> having said that, I, I really want to get to the root of then what makes a lot of this the skeptical species versus the ideological? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, mostly it's to do with you know, what uh, I think these skeptical conservatives were skeptical about. And um, on the one hand, they were deeply skeptical about ideology. <laughs> they were uh, skeptical about ideology and in particular. They were wary of the way that ideology works mm. um, in the mind. Uh, so what kind of work does ideology do? Ideology, and I'm, I'm going to use somewhat abstract uh, language here, um, but we can talk about what I mean in the particular if you want. You know, ideology is a way of kind of re-describing the world. And again, I want to actually I want to say I don't think these insights are exclusive to I mean, skeptical conservatives, by the way. I mean, I think, you know, the 20th century, plenty of figures that we associate with the left have also looked critically at ideology and mm -hmm. the way that it functions in the average person. Yes, yeah. Marx is uh, one of them. For sure. Example. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so what ideology does is it, or, you know, it orders the world. It allows us to um, uh, take what's in front of us and to place what's in front of us into a different uh, context, uh, a context that is saturated with um, with morality, uh, a context that's saturated with abstract categories. Um, uh, again, that's the kind of, you know, I guess, highfalutin version. The sort of day to day version is, you know, if you go on Twitter uh, or anywhere online, you know, online people are extremely, I mean, they're incredibly dexterous um, at doing precisely this, right? They can take any situation mm -hmm. whatsoever. They can take anything that happens in America, anything that, you know, any little incident in a school, uh, any little incident with a, in a classroom or whatever, yeah. they can take this and they can place it immediately into um, this, you know, kind of Manichaean battle of of uh, of abstract categories right. of good versus evil, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. Some some um, some kid flipping a desk and getting into a fight with our kids. Some and, and all of a sudden we're talking about critical race theory and teachers unions yeah. and and, uh, and the exactly, left agenda exactly or the, whatever. The decline the decline of the family. Right. I mean the whole nine. I mean like we can we can, all, it all fits in there nicely. Um, so I on the one hand I think so it begins then with uh, um, this critique of precisely this tendency. Um, um, in modern political thought or modern political thinking, this tendency to sort in terms of, of uh, ideological categories. Uh, so it begins there, but I mean, I think you know it it it, it goes on considerably further. So um, 
Actually, does that does that answer your question? I don't want to. Like, no, I I, yeah, I think so far. Know. I mean, we're getting to the nature of, of the skeptical conservative or skeptical sure. conservatism. So I, I think that definitely answers so far. Of course, uh, if you want to okay. continue, please do. I think we're on a so good I, track here. I can maybe give you a couple examples of, yeah. I, I think, how this cashes out in particular looking rightwards. So one thing that I've been kind of surprised with, I guess, actually, was um, the, the way that the category of nature works in um, in conservatism broadly construed as an ideological project. So I think we see this anywhere from a figure like um, uh, Strauss in his consider of natural right, in his in his writings on natural right, to um, sort of more uh, natural right-oriented libertarians, uh, you know, the, uh, even a figure like Nozick, I think, fits into this camp, right? Many libertarians talk about politics in terms of rights. This conception of rights is rooted in an essentially abstract conception of human nature. In fact, many libertarians have a difficult talk, difficulty talking about politics in any language except the language of rights. But right. it, it even shows up, too, in like kind of 21st century style conservatism in. Uh, so, for example, right, uh, one of the one of the common objections you hear to uh, to to feminism, one of the uh, common objections you hear to really any kind of um, egalitarian project is that uh, human beings have a, a particular nature um, and that the reason why, for example, women report lower levels of happiness you know, at work or something like that is because by nature they weren't meant to be doing this. Um, that, uh, you know, we, there are certain things that make us happy and certain things that don't make us happy. And that to, to engage in ideological projects, ideologically egalitarian projects. And here I'm thinking of figures like, uh, I guess Jordan Peterson, uh, would, would fit in this category. It's, it's folly, right? It's always going to fail and you're always going to end up grafting, um, this artificial construct onto our, you know, rooted evolutionary nature. And I think a lot of People in these categories have become enamored with evolutionary psychology uh, or uh, various other, you know, an emphasis on on um, uh, biology, I guess, as yeah. a kind of ideological category. Exactly. And what was what I was struck with and actually going back in, you know, looking at uh, figures like um, uh, figures like Montaigne, figures like Burke, figures uh, um, even like Hayek is an exactly opposite conception of of uh, not of human nature, but of human projects in general. So if you look back at somebody like Burke or somebody like Montaigne, the impression you get isn't that we have some kind of rigorous nature, a nature that itself has moral import or ideological import, uh, and it can actually tell us what sorts of relationships we ought to be engaged in that can actually tell us uh, what kind of political societies we ought to be um adopting uh rather what you get is this kind of you know incredibly rich appreciation for adaptability uh as the primary feature of of uh of human behavior mm-hmm. uh you know one of my favorite lines in this literature is you know from burke's uh uh letter where you know he says art is man's nature um there is no nature or human nature that is separate from the various uh, sets of arrangements that we have adapted to, I'm sorry, that we've adopted and that we've adapted ourselves to over time. Um, so, whereas I think conservatism today is seen as as this kind of, as in many ways it is kind of saturated with these very rigorous and very consequential, very substantive conceptions of human nature, of the natural world. Um, uh, and I uh, I think there's an analog to this, I guess, in, too, in terms of revealed religion and things like that. I think you see in the skeptical tradition um, a, a, a much larger emphasis on on change, um, on 
the ways that um, human beings adapt to different circumstances and the ways that we ourselves, that our reason, that our expectations, that our practical wisdom, that these are all influenced by, these are all shaped by the arrangements in which we've been raised, the arrangements that have molded us. So, um, so something like skeptical, the skeptical species of conservatism, if you want to look at kind of where it disagrees in like a philosophical way with ideological conservatism, is that the emphasis is on man as a conventional creature, on, um, uh, on our focus being on a set of conventions, on the human capacity to adapt, hmm. on um, not rejecting change, not as seeing all change as somehow alien to or as in some way contravening a kind of natural order that has assembled itself out of you know, disparate pieces or something like that, but rather seeing change and adaptation as themselves processes that are, that are uh, I mean, what human beings do, and it's process that processes that need to be managed and need to be done wisely, um, done with a set of tools. So, in other words, what what good are our institutions? What good are um, is our body of experience? It's it's good precisely because it allows us. It's a set of tools that we can use to adapt to new circumstances. It's a set of tools that we can use to uh, emphasize a sense of continuity across time. Mm. Um, so this emphasis on convention, it has all sorts of consequences for how we think about reason, how we think about change, right? You're going to have a much less uh, heroic conception of human reason if you think about human reason as being in some sense the product of, as in some sense embedded in a set of conventions. So reason isn't that tool which allows you to transcend a set of conventions. Reason isn't that tool that allows you to grasp, identify, reify uh, to pursue violently, if necessary, a set of abstract and natural rights over and against the conventions that you have um, adapt, uh, adopted. Uh, rather, reason itself is constrained by these. Reason is uh, it's the, the name that we give to a kind of instrumental capacity to move between and to use the various institutional and uh, 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 behaviors, various arrangements that we've come to over time. It allows you to kind of use what's at hand to accomplish your uh, ends, which themselves are determined in some ways by um, the kind of institutional context in which you've been raised. So you have a much less, a much less heroic, a much less romantic, a much less abstract mm. uh, conception of human reason. Um, likewise, rights, uh, right? So I think many conservatives. Um, avowed self-avowed conservatives see themselves as you know defenders of the rights spelled out in the declaration of some abstract conception of natural right of uh, rights as a kind of transcendent category that imposes itself on conventions etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know if you look at burke if you look at oakshot um, neither of them were neither of them were rights theorists in any way um burke um uh has uh <laughs> Burke is extremely skeptical about nature as a category. He's extremely skeptical about natural right um, as a category. Hmm. Uh, he sees the the danger in um, in the view that these abstractly conceived and um, you know these kind of purely philosophical notions of right. He sees the danger in the idea that these transcend our conventional arrangements um that they transcend our day-to-day -day conceptions of what is right uh, and uh, our obligations legal and otherwise 
Um, and likewise with Oakshot. Um, I mean, Oakshot, Oakshot has, you know, surprisingly catty things to say about the Declaration of Independence, for example, and the American Revolutionary Project. Um, uh, catty in a very kind of English way, I guess. But, uh, you know, obviously, again, no, no rights theorist um, at all. Uh, so uh, when it comes to something like change. Right. And so, you know, if you're if you have a, an abstract conception of of nature, if you have an abstract conception of reason and natural right, you're going to look very um, uh, unfavorably upon any change. Change is almost always going to be seen, particularly change that's coming from those who you take to be opposed to or hostile to uh, the natural rights that you hold dear. You're going to see any change coming from them as bad mm -hmm. and as something that has to be rejected. Um, and. At the same time, you're also going to be more than willing to um, undo all sorts of arrangements. You know, you're going to be you're going to want to drain the swamp or whatever if it's in pursuit of what you take to be the right. kind of natural categories versus this much more skeptical approach, which much more grounded, much more moderate um, uh, and which seeks, you know, which sees change as something that has to happen, which seems change as a kind of immutable fact of human affairs, of human endeavors. And that wants to emphasize continuity by making change in the most judicious, um, mm. in uh, the the most moderate, in a way that is informed by precisely the experiences and arrangements that that make us who we are. Um, you know, in other words, you know, when it comes time to perform surgery or something like that, you confine your surgery to what Burke calls the peccant part. You 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 cure only the part that needs curing, um, and you do so for the health of the overall body as opposed to killing the thing or uh you know uh reconfiguring it in some radical way mm -hmm. yeah and, and and kind of what you're saying there about how this always runs up you know head to head against the sort of ideal ideology in general but also even ideological conservatism it seems to me that the the seed underneath all that is that skeptical conservatives might in a way of course i'm generalizing look at whatever ideology is coming to the table as you said is sort of is this prism you you view the world through or other people view it through different ways and so on and so forth like the skeptical conservative might look at that as just sort of the ideology is all coming by and sort of disturbing something it's causing trouble or something whether it's for the the rights that the skeptical conservative might think of as or you know use this very interesting word in your essay you highlighted italicized like practice like you know our, our practice of, of of the wisdom we've accumulated so far what we've been doing for so long that's been working whatever else it is the skeptical conservative looks at ideology is almost a, a disruptor to that like why are you coming in and messing yeah. up all this practice almost yeah i mean so uh so it's I think there are two things that come out of this on on the one hand uh yeah so it's going to a skeptical conservative is going to be skeptical of all kind of grand projects grand political visions um it's uh you know those with grand political visions there rarely do you have a grand political vision that is like rooted in the status quo no one comes in and kind of romantically uh reaffirms uh, our kind of everyday experience or everyday arrangements. Uh, typically, you know, when when we come to talk politics, when we come to engage in political theory or something like that, it's because we have gripes. It's because we have belly aching uh, to 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 do to perform. Um, it's because we want to see uh, change undertaken. Um, so, when it comes to performing this change, when it comes to kind of like doing the business of politics. Um, I think the, the modern way of thinking about politics in the way that figures like Burke and Oakeshott uh, identify as being potentially quite pernicious is 
we think of it as in this way. So I'm a liberal or I'm an illiberal, I'm a conservative or I'm, I'm an integralist or I'm a socialist, I'm a communist, whatever. This means I have a set of ideological commitments, right? These come before politics, hmm. right? If the world were good, the world would look like this. It would have these characteristics. It would right. have these features. Um, and so what is politics? Politics is just that process. Uh, whatever shape it takes, politics is just that process through which we get from where we are now to that world. I mean, right. that's that's kind of what it looks like. Politics is a it's a necessary uh, practice that we engage in in order to reach this better state, this uh, this end goal. Um, and I think that uh, what a figure like Burke wants to caution against is precisely this way of thinking about politics, right? So. Um, we we come into the world right it's it's 2023 you know we're we have this set of institutions we have this set of arrangements that we've kind of inherited from the past we recognize that it has shaped the world that we live in but it's also shaped us in some sense right in many ways the expectations the world that we imagine we're moving toward is going to be shaped it's going to be formed by these arrangements by these institutions so this idea that we sit outside of politics that we have mm. some eight some some a priori conception of politics, some pre-political conception that we're moving towards uh, is a mistake on the one hand. And it's only going to lead to further compounding uh, of this mistake. It's going to lead to a purely um, uh, rationalist or engineering oriented conception of politics where politics is just whatever steps we have to take to get to the things that we want. Hmm. Um, somebody like uh, Oakshot in particular, Oakshot loves just using metaphors to describe politics. Some of them I think are more useful than others. But, you know, one that he loves is like gardening. So, um, um, you know, gardening is like gardening is I mean, it's a practice. You know, what are you doing when you're gardening? I mean, it would be weird, I guess. I guess you could if you wanted to think about gardening as like, oh, I have this in I can see in the future these beautiful tomato plants uh, and, you know, this fabulous garden or something like that. And I'm just taking the steps towards that. Gardening is more I mean, it's an everyday activity where we go out and we kind of tend to. Uh, we tend to that which exists, that which is sprouted, that, you know, which uh, has failed to sprout. Uh, we trim here and we we tuck there and we, you know, we water this and we, and we water that. I think he wants to think about politics more in those terms. It's like we have a set of arrangements. Um, uh, these arrangements uh, are those arrangements which allow us each to sort of pursue our own projects. Um, and these arrangements sometimes need tending to. Uh, so uh, it's not that we're all engaged in some utopian project. It's not that we're all headed towards the same ideological endpoint. It's not that we're all engaged in the same kind of moral endeavor. Um, it, it's not that we're all you know, headed toward the kingdom of light. It's not that we're all headed towards uh, a, um, a classless utopia or anything like that. We're not all engaged in this one single defining ideological project. We're all kind of off doing our own things. But being off and doing our own things is only possible if a set of social and political institutions are in place that allow us to do so without killing each other, without um, conflicting um, violently uh, or otherwise with one another. Right. So that set of arrangements, that set of political arrangements, that needs tending. Um, you know, the Internet introduces all sorts of new ways to defraud people, all sorts of new ways to take advantage of people. To you know, to to dox people, to harass people, to threaten people's lives, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, this presents a challenge, right? We're going to have to tend to 
um, our political arrangements in such a way as to uh, deal with these new circumstances. And so, you know, bringing the age of the Internet or whatever, or bringing ourselves into the age of the Internet means precisely bringing our expectations, our experiences. It means bringing our institutions and our ways of doing things, ways of attending this business from the past into this new endeavor. Um, and these are going to have to be changed, right? Obviously, ways of thinking about fraud, ways of thinking about harassment in the physical world are going to need to be updated in various ways. They're going to need to be adapted in various ways to um, to the Internet and to online spaces. But that's that that for him, I guess, is a more accurate description of what we're actually doing when we're doing politics. Right. We're not imagining the Internet as some you know classless space or some place where information wants to be free or whatever. Right. We're just like, listen, we now talk online. We used to talk in person. Now we're talking online. How do we um, adapt to this new set of circumstances? How to how do we use the experience and practices um, that have that governed our lives before that uh, ordered our arrangements before? How do we update these into this new into this new space that I think for him is the that's what politics is. That's what politics consists um, in. Uh, and of course, this is a, this is a pretty ho-hum conception of politics. Gardening is a pretty ho-hum conception of politics. Uh, a lot of people are, you know, completely and utterly devoted to these this kind of larger ideological uh, vision. And, you know, to that extent, conservatism doesn't really have a whole lot to offer. I mean, that's one thing that I, you know, would say to reactionaries a very strike if if you know if the world is completely out of sorts like if, if you look around and see nothing worth saving um uh you know if if you think the best thing to be is an instrument in the complete and total overturning of the current regime or order or whatever then it just seems weird to call that conservatism and not only that but even from your own perspective why would you be why would you want to be conservative like right. why would you uh see yourself in that way you're obviously a radical uh you're just a non-liberal radical in right. whatever way you know you want to classify that right and, and that would be a, a whole other episode though a very interesting yeah. one and unfortunately on that exact note um i think that's a great way to, to sort of land the plane if you will because we are pretty much out of time so i'm going to move us ahead okay. to our formal wrap-up uh brendan sure. in each episode i want to make sure that the guest actually does have the last word in our formal wrap-up so we sort of ask this final official question if you will so i'm going to ask it to you right now so let me say as our last sort of kick at the ball here you know we we've talked about a lot you and i and i think it's been fascinating but if we could bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question and topic today let me ask you at the end of the day what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what conservatism is and this difference between the ideological and the skeptical you outlined in other words if you wanted someone to leave here with one or two or just a few takeaways if anything from everything we've talked about what would you yeah. like them to take with them Sure. I mean, so I would um, to I guess to uh, moderates of all stripes, moderate liberals, moderate conservatives. I mean, I, I see conservatism mostly as an approach to liberalism broadly construed. Uh, I would say to, to <laughs> most thinking people who are, I guess, uh, somewhat gobsmacked by what happened on the American right. I just want to say that it doesn't have to be like that. Um that uh, there are plenty of insights um, to be gleaned from uh, figures like um, Montaigne and Hume uh, and Burke and Mandeville and Oakshot and all these guys. Um, when I say insights, I mean there is plenty of truth in, in what they say. 
and that liberal politics in general um, can be greatly improved. Liberal political theory, liberal political philosophy can be greatly improved uh, by attending to uh, these texts, by attending to these insights, and that what passes for conservatism um, on the American and you know the global right really uh, is you know not just a kind of corruption of the kind of conservatism that I've been talking about, but is is completely and totally alien to it. Um, I think we need uh, we need to be very serious about um, uh, about uh, taxonomizing the right, about identifying uh, its various pathologies, about giving names to it. And um, what I'm trying to do here is to save what is good on um, on uh, out of these texts that we've traditionally associated with with the political right. Excellent. I think that's a great way to leave it. So, Brandon Turner, let me say thank you very much for joining me on the Curious Task today. Matt, thanks, Alex, and thanks to to ILS. It was great to talk to you. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. The Curious Task.